electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and we'll see you then. Hi, everybody. It has been a wild day for investors with stocks in rally mode for a second day. And get this, the Dow is now on pace for its best week since 1938. We have nearly 13% gains on the week, and it's a shortened week. We're going to achieve in four days what previously took five. Let's check on the markets right now. We're up 524 points, two and a quarter percent for the Dow and the S&P. The Nasdaq lagging today. It's up about one and a quarter percent. But these gains come despite terrible weekly jobless claims, jumping another 6.6 million. And means in just three weeks, 10% of the U.S. labor force is out of work. But the Fed announcing details of its massive $2.3 trillion program today with some new support for junk bonds. That sparked this move higher in stocks. The package includes Main Street lending, payroll protection support, and backing for local governments. The market even shrugging off the Senate's impasse over more small biz relief funds that was supposed to be on the way today. They left town without getting that pass. And on top of all of that, oil extremely volatile as investors await official word on cuts from the OPEC plus meeting today. Uh, you can see behind me the crude up about 2%. So we're well off the spike we had earlier in the session. Let's get the very latest now with Mr. Bob Bassani, who as always joins us for that. Hi, Bob. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you as always. And energy banks, retail, outperforming, consumer staples, underperforming. This is very simple. I call it the restart of the economy stocks that are moving today. So there's the Dow Industrials. We're sitting right near the highs. Look at that, over 2,800 on the S&P 500. Take a look at, I, I call these stocks restart of the economy stocks. Oil stocks like Apache rallying uh, big today. Coals in the retail sector rallying big. The airlines are rallying big. United Airlines rallying. Kimco uh, in the REITs rallying. And even the restaurants like Brinker that owns Chili's, they're rallying as well. How about this high yield move? The Fed shocked everybody and said not only are we buying corporate bonds and corporate ETFs, we're buying high yield bonds and high yield ETFs. There's the high yield ETF on the bottom. But here's companies that are now junk bond status. Macy's, Gap. Delta, Ford, they were investment, no longer. Look at the moves in these stocks today. Tell, tell me the Fed can't move the equities market. Oh, boy, they certainly are. Finally, the S&P 500, Kelly, has retraced 50% of its losses. It moved 1,000 points down from February 19th to the bottom on March 23rd and has now regained almost exactly, almost 500 points, nearly 50%. A remarkable move. And we're talking two and a half weeks. Guys, wow. back to you. Yeah, remarkable and even more so given that time frame. Bob, thanks so much, our Bob Bassani. Now to the Fed and that $2.3 trillion flood of money Bob was just talking about. They're unleashing it to help support the economy and giving us important new details about who is getting help now. Steve Leisman is here with all of that for us. Steve. Kelly, thanks very much. Yes, and it's historic, unprecedented, especially to roll all this out in one day. Reserve. Uh, piece by piece attacking parts of the credit markets that remain unfunded or where there were potential 
funding lapses because of the coronavirus and the shutdown in the economy. I'm just going to provide you some of the broader details here. Bob gave you some really important ones. I'll come back to in a second. Okay, so the Fed will buy $600 billion in loans that are going to be done through a Main Street lending facility. We'll come back to the details on that. It's expanding the corporate credit programs and this TALF, the term asset-backed loan facility, to support under up to $850 billion of credit. Inside that is the high-yield program that, by the way, the fallen angels are part of that, which are the ones who might have been who were investment grade and fell down below investment grade. That's why Ford corporate bonds are soaring today. Fed Chair Jay Powell had a press conference earlier today, uh, not a press conference, sorry, a, a Q&A session earlier today, and he explained the reason why it's incumbent on the Fed and the government to step in in this case. People are undertaking these sacrifices for the common good. We need to make them whole. To the extent we have the ability to make them whole, we should be doing that as a society. They didn't cause this. Their business isn't closed because of anything they did wrong. They didn't lose their job because of anything did wrong. This is what the great fiscal power of the United States is for, is to protect these people. So this Main Street Lending Program, I'll give you a few details off of that. Four-year loans. Uh, you can uh, the principal and interest will be deferred for additional year. It's open to companies with 10,000 or fewer workers, revenue less than $2.5 billion. While businesses of any size can potentially take advantage of this, it's really for medium-sized uh, businesses, ones that have uh, substantial relationships with their banks that could take advantage. The Muni facility will buy short-term notes directly from states and large counties and cities, cities of greater than a million people, counties of greater than 2 million people. And there's the TALF open to AAA transfers of CMBS and as well, CLOs, uh, leveraged uh, uh, obligations. So, uh, Kelly, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, the Federal Reserve going where no central bank or no U.S. central bank has gone before. And we'll see about the operational details that are going to be required to get these up and running and get this money out into the system. Steve, one clarification. Uh, are they going, so the fallen angels issue makes sense to me. You know, companies that were investment grade but are now uh, junk bond status, it sounds like they're providing liquidity to those uh, facilities or to, those, to, those, to that lending. But it also sounds like they're buying junk bond ETFs outright. That would cover more of the junk bond world than just the fallen angels, right? Yes, I do believe so, Kelly. And I'll just put an asterisk around that, which is I, there are, I believe, five or six term sheets out for the new facilities here. And I cannot protest, uh, pretend to know every single detail. I think you're right about that. Uh, it, it's in the term sheet. I could call it up. But uh, yeah, I think that's right. The, I was just reading it before we got on this uh, facility here, which says that they will buy. The facility may also purchase U.S. listed ETFs whose investment objective is to provide broad exposure to the U.S. corporate bonds. Uh, those holdings, primary investment objective, investment-grade corporate bonds, and the remainder will be in ETFs whose primary objective is U.S. high yield. So you are correct, Kelly. That's what the okay. uh, term sheet says, investment yield. There you go. Yeah. No, Steve, we really appreciate it. Again, you, know, you can see why it's not just the, the fallen angels, but the whole complex surging on that development. Well, we'll have more in a little bit, uh, but we appreciate it, Steve, very much. Steve Leesman going through all of the details there. And there are so many today. Let's get some more reaction to the Fed's bold moves. Joining me now are Brian Belsky, the chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets, and Jason Trennert, who is chairman of Strategus Research Partners. Welcome to both of you. Jason, uh, your first thoughts on the Fed's move extending into the junk bond space and some huge support uh, for municipal bonds as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, uh, you know, when you think about the fact that before Bear Stearns failed, 90% of the Fed's balance sheet, which is about $800 billion, was in treasuries. Uh, and you think about how far we've come in, in 11 years, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty shocking. And I, I can't say I'm thrilled uh, with it in, in a certain sense, in that, uh, but I also think that it's necessary. I think the Fed's doing precisely the right thing, uh, but um, theoretically, at least, uh, unelected officials shouldn't be be having such a, a heavy hand in the overall economy as a whole. I think that's very theoretical. By the same token, this is, as Jay Powell, as Chairman Powell said, this is a decision that this shutdown is largely being driven by government policy, and so. By the same token, it seems only appropriate that the government would compensate or try to ease the pain that you're having on the economy as a whole. Right. But it, it's uh, just if you're a traditionalist, this, it, it, it's hard to feel really great about uh, about this uh, because it seems like we're pretty far away from what the the, the initial idea of the Fed was about a hundred, you know, more than a hundred years ago. So. It reminds me also a little bit of, of prices at the gasoline pump where, you know, they rise very quickly, but they fall very slowly. You know, yeah, uh, and, right. uh, Brian, I'll turn to you on this. You know, the Fed seems very, to be very quickly able to move very quickly, you know, to help everybody and lend support. But it's very hard to unwind these programs once they've started. I guess from the investor's point of view, from the market side, they probably take that as a good thing, right? Well, I think so. We go back to what we saw post uh, the credit crisis where uh, the Fed got involved and clearly TARP uh, was designed at first for the banks. And if you take a look at when the market actually bottomed in March, uh, financials all performed for six or seven months and then for all intents and purposes were dead for 10 years. So is the same thing going to happen this time around with some of these companies that really the Fed came in to really help support whether or not it's a a cruise line or an airline or other kind of consumer thing, you have to really, that's where you have to really put your fundamental hat on, Kelly, and really see what the wherewithal of these companies are, you know, going forward. We've been on record by saying we still think that the market made a bottom March 23rd. We're still, we still said in print that day that the market would rally 40 to 50 percent because we thought people were way too bearish and making these big depression type calls. But I think Jason made an excellent point. It's how we unroll this going forward. It's clearly not going to be anytime soon in 2020. This is a question of what happens in 2021 and 2022 and what, the, how, what and how the market digests that. But until then, we still think that this monetary and fiscal policy, the response has been very positive to refuel and build confidence back not only to the consumer, but the stock market. Right. And we saw the consumer confidence number was awful this morning, so they could use it. Brian, I want to ask you, because you said we had this sharp rally in the financials after 08, but then they were dead for a decade. Um, do you see similar trends playing out with the hard, hardest hit uh, sectors here? And I guess another way of saying the question is, where would you recommend investors be positioned? Can you own the S&P 500 index fund? It'd be fine. Well, uh, you know, we've never been big believers in terms of indexing in general. Uh, part of our job also is to be a portfolio manager. So we clearly uh, default to more active stock picking strategies. I would say this, you know, for 20 years as a strategist, I've talked about how I think there's way too much capacity in the consumer land. Maybe this is one of those situations where we take out some of these underperforming companies in consumer land that we don't really need anymore. Maybe we're going to see massive uh, reworkings of how we consume 
money, Kelly, whether or not it's online or Costco or Walmart and continued to be that type of strength. I think that the consumer never, ever, ever bet against the consumer's wherewithal, but bet against how these companies are going to make money going forward. And I think that's a very, very key component. So that's why, from a longer term perspective, we are still overweight communication services, discretionary, and technology with respect to our U.S. holdings for the okay. next 12 to 18 months. Okay. Jason, let me bring you in on that. And again, the Walmart and Costco comps have been uh, fantastic. But I can tell you, even uh, locally speaking, it's getting harder and harder to go to the supermarket. There's, you know, the checkout line, just the whole experience. It's, you know, if there were a way to avoid it going forward, I would. Um, something that Brian said I thought was interesting, he said for 20 years we had too much consumer capacity. Maybe now is the way to take that out, but not if the Fed's providing support writ large, right? Well, I still think it's, uh, it will lessen the blow, but by the same token, it, almost, it doesn't matter what the interest rate is. If there's no revenues, um, it, you still can't make the – you don't have the cash flow to make the interest expense. So it will help larger companies with, more, with access to more permanent capital – I think that, you know, the, one of the things that will unfortunately be a part of this, and I know they're trying, they're trying to move heaven and earth uh, to help, which is appropriate, small and medium-sized businesses, uh, local businesses that don't have access to that permanent capital. And there, unfortunately, I, I, as much as they're trying to, to help, the government is trying to help, you really are in, in, uh, in a situation where, it's very touch and go. You know, the, a lot of these companies operate with very low margins to begin with. Again, they don't have permanent capital. And, and so it, it will be interesting, uh, and, and we pray that, that a lot of those companies pull through. Yeah. Um, if not, it, it, there's going to be an ability for, for companies that have access to these programs to consolidate uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of ex- excess capacity, particularly, particularly in the retail space. Yeah, and that's another way maybe to think about it as an investor. We're going to speak with some of these small businesses a little bit later on, but we'll leave it there for now. Thank you both today. Appreciate your thoughts, Brian Belsky and Jason Trenner. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin optimistic today about reopening the economy, saying May is a possibility. But Bill Gates says reopening earlier won't get you the economic recovery you think it will. We'll dig into that next. Then Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer says the pandemic is accelerating geopolitical trends that will redefine the post-COVID world. He joins us ahead. And take a look at shares of the banks as we head to a quick break. They are higher across the board today. Citigroup and Wells Fargo leading the gains today. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Microsoft co-founder and Gates Foundation co-chair Bill Gates says the economy won't magically go back to normal when people start returning to work. He spoke with our Becky Quick, who joins me now live, Becky, with many of the challenges uh, he sees ahead. He was pretty sober in this discussion today. 
Yeah, Kelly, you know, I think he's just being realistic in terms of understanding that the American public has been pretty deeply affected by everything that's happened with coronavirus, particularly in those areas that have been hardest hit by coronavirus. And I think this is a recognition, really, that uh, it's going to take more than just a declaration of all clear for the economy to actually open up again. No one should think the government can wave a wand and all of a sudden, you know, the economy is anything like it was before this happened. That awaits either a miracle therapeutic that has an over 95% cure rate or broad usage of the vaccine. Gates thinks that the economy is really going to open up in stages, maybe critical areas first, places like construction and manufacturing, and then maybe schools as well because of the number of young people that are involved there and because young people seem to be much less uh, affected by the coronavirus. So he's hoping that schools, of course, can open by the fall as well. But then when you start talking about other things, maybe sporting events, things that require people to come out in great numbers to arenas or other places, he says that that's going to have to be debated, just the idea of what the risk to GDP is versus what the risk to the American health is. Now, as far as the vaccine goes, they've been very, working very seriously on this at the Gates Foundation. And one thing that I thought was pretty optimistic and, and, and some good news in this is that they have identified at least 20 different compounds. He said 20 compounds that could be very effective as a vaccine. However, the downside to that is he thinks that that timeline is something like 18 months before you'll see a vaccine that can be broadly manufactured and rolled out because you have all kinds of challenges that come with that. Not only just broad manufacturing and enough to make sure that you have 500 million doses or more that can be put out so that you start really effectively vaccinating people, but just the dosages themselves. He said that in general, vaccines are less effective in older people. How you usually get herd immunity is that it's the younger people that the vaccines work on, and that protects the older people, um, that you have to have much higher doses to make an effective vaccination for an older person. And, and that in turn raises all kinds of questions about how do you get a high enough dosage level so that it's effective for older people without putting younger people at risk, pregnant, pregnant women at risk. And that's something that he thinks will take some time to figure out. Um, also, on the more optimistic front, though, something that could come faster, he did say that therapeutics for coronavirus could come at a much faster pace. Manufactured antibodies are using the blood of recovered uh, patients in order to help treat people who are just getting sick. Those, uh, there's enough of them that in aggregate, I'd say it's very likely we'll have uh, those interventions in the four to six month time frame. But how much that'll cut the death rate and these overloads, uh, you know, is still a bit uncertain. And Kelly, he did say that just in terms of when things start to open up for the U.S. economy, he's looking at the end of May at the earliest. So he's kind of on the same page as Secretary Mnuchin there. But I guess the way that Bill Gates would characterize it is it's going to be a very slow return to, quote unquote, you know, anything like normal. Yeah, he said he's getting his thoughts together in the next week, trying to figure out how we can go about that, a plan that kind of works with that. But he did say it's a discussion that uh, lots of people should be involved in. And this should be a broad discussion with the American public. All right. Becky, thanks very much. A lot of interesting stuff. We appreciate it. Becky, quick talking to Bill Gates today. Coming up, 625,000 requests and $80 billion in loans. That's what J.P. Morgan and Bank of America have seen in two days for the small business program. We've got the latest numbers and we'll speak with a small business who's hoping this will help her get her restaurants back on track. Plus, it's all about the math. Unprecedented cuts in the oil market are necessary to bring stability to prices. But will we get them? We'll discuss as the oil price continues to chop around. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. CNBC is back after this.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Congress just left town today without putting more money into the pot for the small business relief program. Remember, demand has been off the charts. Some 430,000 applications have been assigned that all-important loan number at a value of some $110 billion. But Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin this morning reassuring us that everyone will be taken care of. There are a lot of small businesses out there that this has been a lifesaver. And, you know, the banks have been overwhelmed. So the issue is they'll get to all these customers, and we want to make sure the customers know, whether they're charities, whether they're small businesses, if they didn't have accounts, the banks will get to all of them. Let's check in with Kate Rogers as we approach the one-week mark. And, Kate, there must be some disappointment uh, that the Senate didn't approve more funds today. Uh, certainly, Kelly, a lot of concern about that. And for businesses who are still in limbo on that PPP funding, there is another option. It's called an economic injury disaster loan of up to $2 million. That's directly from the SBA to cover emergency expenses like payroll and bills. The SBA had been touting that business owners could get an advance on the loan of up to $10,000 within just days of applying. But much like these PPP loans, business owners are telling us they haven't heard anything from the SBA about these grants. We haven't been able to find anyone who had gotten that funding. The SBA also declined to comment on EIDL amounts and processes after changing its guidance earlier in the week uh, to just $1,000 per employee as a part of that grant program. Now, business owners like Aaron Gerdeman, a gym owner in Dublin, Ohio, are applying for all the aid that they can get and just hoping that something comes through quickly. I haven't had any uh, clients or generating any revenue since March 16th. And I'm sitting here waiting to see what's going on with the government aid. Um, I'm hoping that we get some of this resolution to this very soon. Now, a senior administration official tells us that disbursement amounts that we keep asking for from banks to businesses won't be made available for some time. I can tell you, though, I did just get off the phone with a business owner who did get his PPP loan funded in full, $890,000 from a credit union that he's worked with for over 10 years in Salt Lake City. Wow. Back over to you, Kelly. Kate, I'm also thinking, you know, if the Senate didn't approve more money today, and I, granted, they have more time, but tomorrow is when the next round is supposed to begin with the independent contractors and so forth. It's first come, first serve. The one thing I didn't think about as we've been talking about this timeline is that tomorrow's Good Friday. I mean, are people going to be, how are they supposed to even communicate with the banks about this? So a lot of this is supposed to be done online. Uh, very few of the businesses that I've spoken to have actually gone to a branch to do this. They've talked to their bankers and done everything 
on the web. Now, as you mentioned, tomorrow's a holiday. I don't know how easy it's going to be to get anyone on the phone. I don't know how many people will be working. The independent contractors and self-employed businesses can apply tomorrow. Hopefully more funding will be on the way. There are a lot of concerns about that. Uh, but again, this has been a logjam, a big backlog of loans to get through. They're slowly trickling out. We've talked to two businesses now that have gotten funding. We hope the story changes next week and many more will be in touch with us that have actually gotten this cash, Kelly. Yeah. No, we uh, really appreciate the reporting. Kate, thanks so much. Kate Rogers with the very latest for us. For more on how that small biz relief uh, program is working, I'm joined by Madeline Alfano, who is the owner of Maria's Italian Kitchen. It's a small restaurant chain in Los Angeles. Madeline, we spoke with you a few weeks ago. Uh, welcome back. And you applied for uh, funding. Have you received yours yet? Well, uh, thankfully, I work with a great bank, Mission Valley Bank, and it's a community bank. And someone just mentioned that um, that it's Good Friday, but I can guarantee you that our bankers are working the entire weekend. Uh, they worked all last weekend. I put in my um, application on Friday. I spoke with Daniel Epstein, who's the EVP there. Uh, he worked with me on Friday, on Saturday, on Sunday, and on Monday to get all the all, to get my application through. I signed it yesterday, and we should see our funding by April 17th, which is amazing. But it's really through the work of the community bank, my relationships, their relationships, my loyalty. Their loyalties to the community, they've been amazing. So I hope others have that same experience with their banks the way I do. And tell us how you'll use the cash as soon as you get it. I, I know the idea is that you have to use it within eight weeks, although, I mean, you might get yours relatively early on. Maybe they extend that period. But what's the plan uh, once you receive those funds? And, and that's, a good, that's a good question. That's the challenge. So we rush to get the loan, and then you get it, and then you have eight weeks. And that takes us to the first week of June. So my numbers are, you know, we, we started out with 348 employees before COVID. We now have 180. Of those, uh, we closed two locations, our Oxnard location and our Montana location, which was about 53 employees. I think I sent that information to you. Um, but the challenge is that many of them are servers, bussers, those that did not either choose not to come back and take another position or are unable to. So in order for us to bring everyone back, we have to have our complete operation open, meaning full service dining. And that's the challenge. I think they might have to extend that eight week to about 12 weeks, maybe through the first of July. But our hope is that uh, we'll be able to bring back everyone and we furloughed. And the other thing that we're working on too is that the family leave, there's a, a, a FC, I don't, there's so many initials coming up. The acronyms are beyond belief. Absolutely. But we have a, um, we have uh, two of our, our single moms that are going on the family leave program, which is great. So they can get to stay home and take care of their children and also know that when they're ready to come back to work and schools are open, we have a position for them. So it's really exciting for me to yeah, do that. And Madeline, uh, we thank you for the update. It'll be very interesting to see how the next few weeks play out for you and, of course, uh, a microcosm of the whole economy. Appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Madeline Alfano is the owner of Maria's Italian Kitchen. And a quick programming note, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will join Jim Cramer for Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time, hopefully with another update on whether more money is coming soon uh, to the small biz lending program. Coming up, global alliances being torn apart at the seams, more infighting in Europe. Ian Bremmer says this epidemic is accelerating the future. He'll join us next to explain. Plus, he's not a household name, but he's making big headlines in the oil world, grabbing the attention of even ExxonMobil, Texan Ryan Sitton joins us ahead with a look at why his ideas are taking the industry by storm.
Welcome back. Stocks continue to move higher. The Dow's now up 565 points. That's 2.4 percent. Uh, still off the oh, absolute highs of the session, but some pretty nice gains. The S&P up 2.5 percent. The Nasdaq up 1.4 percent. It's the laggard today. In terms of the sectors, all 11 are higher. Financials, utilities and real estate leading the way. 6.5 percent gain nearly for the financials today. J.P. Morgan, not surprisingly, leading the Dow. Uh, Boeing as well. And Disney up there in terms of leadership for the blue chips today. JPM up 10.5 percent. All of this following the Fed's big announcement this morning. We also have some big moves to the upside in retail with Gap, Kohl's, Macy's and Nordstrom seeing gains of more than 10 percent today. And the cruise lines are also surging. Norwegian, Royal Caribbean and Carnival up double digits, about 20 percent in Norwegian's case. And finally, take a look at shares of Ford, which are soaring today because the Fed announced it will be buying what they call fallen angel debt. And Ford is among them. Uh, The equity up 10 percent on the back of that. Let's get to the very latest now in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines at this hour. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's the latest. The global death toll of the pandemic has now risen above 90,000, with more than 15,000 here in the U.S. It's still ongoing, but moments ago, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy in his news conference reported 198 deaths since yesterday, bringing that state's total to 1,700. New Jersey also saw a surge of new cases, more than 3,700 in just the last 24 hours. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says there is still time to negotiate over small business assistance and other measures sought by Democrats. She says Democrats are determined to make it easier for small business to get access to stimulus funds. And as you've probably heard, Pelosi will be Jim Cramer's guest on Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Overseas, Britain reporting 881 new deaths from the coronavirus since yesterday. That brings the country's total to nearly 8,000. Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains in intensive care, but Foreign Minister, Minister Dominic Robb says that Johnson is making, quote, positive steps. We expect more on Mr. Johnson's uh, situation in just a few minutes. As always, you can get more on the coronavirus coverage at CNBC by going to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks very much. Big business is facing big political pressure to reorganize supply chains to put national interests first, not profits. Is this a glimpse of the future, and what does it mean for investors? Joining me now is Ian Bremmer. He's president of the Eurasian Group and G Zero Media. Uh, Ian, it's great to see you, and you know, beautiful. I mean, lovely backdrop, by the way, which is neither here nor there. Uh, but listen, I did it all for you. There you go. It's really uh, lifting together, lifting my spirits. Um, but but tell us how dramatically you think uh, these trends are shifting because of coronavirus. What's it going to look like in the future? Uh, well, we're going to move from a just-in-time supply chain. Uh, to a just-in-case supply chain. Uh, That means that we're going to see a lot more production where consumers actually are. Uh, China will be less the factory of the world. Uh, There's also going to be a lot more inequality uh, in the supply chain because uh, you're going to take a lot of the labor costs out of it. You're going to try to make it more efficient in terms of labor as you have to create more resilience, which itself is more expensive. Um, This is particularly going to hurt the U.S.-China relationship which was already moving in that direction on the technology side, as mm-hmm. you know. I mean, companies like Twitter and Facebook aren't doing business in China, and Huawei is certainly not going to be doing business in the United States anytime soon. That's going to start broadening out to involve both manufacturing and services. Hmm. Add to that nationalizations and bailouts of companies that are under distress that will have conditionality 
from the countries that are giving the money saying you've got 15% unemployment. You have to make sure the people you hire are in the country that's actually bailing you out. Yeah. All of that is moving towards deglobalization. Absolutely. And it's something I think people are coming to, to grips with. And in a way, there's not much you can do to invest around this theme. It just tells you this is how the world is going to change. And there are ways that the U.S. could benefit in terms of that industry. But let me ask you about some of the, the, the relationships. U.S. and China, you mentioned, uh, you know, you, that it would uh, hurt that relationship. Europe, they're fighting right now over these corona bonds and, you know, how much the northern countries should be paying for the southern countries. So when we talk about deglobalization, you know, to what point does this, you know, how far does it go? Well, I mean, there's, there's not a near-term risk that the eurozone falls apart, uh, but th this is a global pandemic, right? I mean, but it's the, the pandemic is the only thing that's global about it. The responses are completely national. They're completely uncoordinated. That's true at the EU level, and it's true at the global level between the United States and its allies. I mean, the U.S. is doing an awful lot domestically, even though it's late on the healthcare side. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the amount of stimulus, uh, the amount of relief you're talking about, the expected stimulus coming down the pike, these are big numbers and they're important. But internationally, the United States is doing nothing, right? There's a complete absence of leadership. There's no multilateral coordination, not on supply chain. In fact, it's the other way around. We're saying here are a whole bunch of new PPE that you're not allowed to export from the United States. That's coming down today from the Trump administration. Over 70 countries are doing that. This is a time when you need supply chains to be coordinated, to be maximized for efficiency, to ensure that the goods go at a, at a decent price where they need to go. The, the response is the exact opposite of that. And, and the most interesting thing to me uh, is actually going to be the future of China. So final question, it, kind of paint this one for us if you can. But it, you have Japan now paying firms to leave China and relocate their production elsewhere. The U.S. Yeah. is pushing hard to kind of move on along the same trend. So if you're China right now, what does the future look like? Well, if you're China, uh, there are some countries that are going to be moving away from you and other countries that desperately need you. Let's keep in mind that the United States approach towards allies has been mostly stick. Either come with us or we're going to sanction you. Come with us or we won't share intelligence. China's been offering a carrot. Not much of a carrot, small and rotten carrot maybe, but it's still a carrot. Here's some, here's some tests. Maybe they don't all work, but here they are. Here's some medical personnel. We're selling all this stuff. We're giving some aid too. There are a lot of countries that aren't in Japan and America's position that they can pay country companies to move back. Most companies, countries around the world are going to be more aligned with Beijing. In descending order, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Eastern Europe, the poorer of the European states, and South America. So coming out of this, much more bifurcation, hmm. much less globalization. Absolutely. It's like breaking apart like the artwork behind you. I'm trying to make some analogy because I just keep looking at it. Uh, Ian, thanks. For fragmentation, <laughs> deeply yeah. saturated. Yes, fragmentation. Ian, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Ian Bremer with the Eurasia Group. Still ahead, it would be a production cut the world has never seen before in terms of scope and size. But Brian Sullivan says this is not even a rescue of oil and gas. It only buys time. He joins me next with the latest on the Saudis and Russia reaching a deal in principle. As we head to break, take a look at shares of Disney, one of the Dow leaders today, having a nice gain of about 6.5%. The company says subscription numbers for Disney Plus have now surpassed 50 million globally. Investors like what they hear. We're back in two.
Welcome back to The Exchange. As more Americans stay home, airports are getting emptier and emptier, as you can see in the images there behind me. Yesterday, there were only 94,931 total passengers in the whole country who went through TSA. A year ago today, it was 2.2 million. The airlines right now are rallying after being down hard this year. American, United, Spirit, and JetBlue leading the way with double-digit gains of nearly 18 percent. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin saying today that help for the airline industry is the next big thing to be rolling out. And meanwhile, it's been a volatile day in the oil market with crude up as much as 12 percent earlier to now turn negative on the session just in the commercial break. Investors are still awaiting a decision on a potential production cut from OPEC plus that meeting happening right now. Let's get to the very latest uh, with Brian Sullivan. We've had headlines all day, Brian, that sounded hugely uh, promising. And now what? I'm shocked that we get hugely promising OPEC headlines (laughs) at the beginning and then as they all come into a room. Things kind of fall apart, Kelly. I'm shocked. It doesn't matter whether you're on a virtual meeting or in a real meeting in Vienna. Listen, this is the way it goes. Let's remember something. We are not talking about oil. I mean, we are, but we're not. We're talking about money, state revenues, government revenues. This is all a conversation about cash flow. Oil just happens to be the source of that. Why has oil turned around? Well, listen, the longer these meetings go on and these flurry of headlines come out, you can be sure that people believe that the differences inside that virtual room may be greater than people think. Secretary General Mohammed Barkindo out earlier today with sort of the introductory speech, some pretty dire stuff. Basically, this is more demand cut than in the Great Recession, that the demand drop is, quote, unprecedented and available storage, and that is key, is filling up quickly. Okay. From the sources that I have talked to, sort of WhatsApp, texted with all day long, here's a couple things that we can talk about. A deal is likely to be 10 to 15 million barrels. That could be close. Now, it's a huge gap, Kelly. I get it because we don't know how much 10 to 15 is OPEC plus, or that includes Brazil, Canada, Norway as well. And here's one major thing. OPEC would like assurances, according to my sources, that the U.S. will cut. Now, we can't, we don't have a national producer. We can't just say we'll cut. The closest thing we've got is that guy you've got coming up, Ryan Sitton, that can quota it. So OPEC is worried that just because companies say they're going to cut, Kelly, doesn't mean they're bound to it. But here's what my source tells me. Remember, if Exxon or Chevron comes out and says we're cutting capital spending, that's a, they have a fiduciary responsibility to abide by that or come back and change their viewpoint. So we might not have an OPEC, but we have an SEC, and that can do the legal work around making sure companies do what they've told investors they will do. That's interesting, Brian. And also, as we speak to Ryan, you know, he's, he's not the only commissioner, so he might be backing the idea of forcing these cuts, but it's not clear that everybody else is, like, is even on board with that. Yeah, it takes... Uh, It takes two-thirds majorities, only three of them, by the way. I mean, never have three people, I think, been on the line for maybe as many possible jobs as these three folks have. I mean, let's let's consider every time we talk about rig counts, which which are down huge again this week, every time we talk about production cuts, capital spending cuts, it's easy to sit in this office behind a camera and forget that those are jobs, those are families, those are mortgages, those are car payments, those are kids' school. I mean... There's so much on the line here. Either way, OPEC continues to discuss. Tomorrow is G20. Our markets are closed, Kelly, which means the futures markets are closed here, too. So we get some giant move in oil prices or big development tomorrow. We won't know until Sunday night.
Wow, that's a great point. All right, Brian. There's, my, there's my estimates, by the way. Put them back up Time for a sec. It. Put them back up just so we can get a, a, a full look at them. Your estimates for what OPEC uh, may come to plus other members of the G20 in terms of a cut. If we get that's that today. That's 11.75 million barrels, by the way. I'll take how much will OPEC and the G20 cut for 600 and it's probably going to be a daily double, Kelly. Timestamp that. We'll see if it holds. We will see if it holds. Uh, oil has now turned negative, so investors are getting pretty skittish. Brian, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Brian Sullivan. For more, I am now joined by Ryan Sitton. He's one of the three officials on the Texas Railroad Commission. They are tasked with regulating oil and gas, not the railroads. Uh, Ryan, it's good to see you again. And uh, listen, I mean, is this binary on what happens with OPEC in terms of what steps Texas might take? No, I don't. You said binary is if they cut, we'll cut. They don't. We don't. I don't think so. In fact, look, we got to look at the landscape. When you look at if, if regardless of what happens, inventories are getting so full. We'll give the shot. Sorry, what? Just a second. Uh, Ryan, uh, going back to you, so you were just saying regardless of what happens, inventories are getting so full. So in other words, even if you stop production today, you'd still have an overcapacity problem. That's right. And, and once inventories uh, fill up, then what's going to happen is production in the United States is going to drop dramatically. And so there's going to be a, a reduction in global production very soon. The question is, is it planned or not? And we're going to see it coming out of the United States, regardless, really, of whether there are cuts overseas. Right. And that's why people say, Texas, your commission doesn't need to do anything because the market will take care of itself. They say Exxon's reducing CapEx you know, read production by 30 percent. They say, like Brian just pointed out, the rig counts down 170 in the past three weeks. So do you guys need to step in and do anything or will the production fall naturally? Well, as you know, on the 14th, we're having that exact discussion and I've been getting people from both sides. But let me explain it this way. Once supply chain, it gets gets completely locked up, which happens when you have no intermittent storage. Now it becomes very difficult to maximize production. So one of the one of the pe things people say is, look, if we if we let storage fill up completely, yeah, maybe you don't do anything. But then a refinery shuts down, and an oil producer, you know, hundreds of miles away and upstream has to shut down immediately, and it's hard to do. So we'll, we'll have a real imbalance in that case. What we're looking for now is people are asking, like, if if they prorate or they, they cut, we cut, we start leaving ourselves some intermittent stores, the entire industry will function a lot more efficiently, which is what we need when prices are so low. Right. So Parsley Energy Pioneer, they've uh, requested these production cuts. I know you said you're open to the idea, but your fellow commissioners do not necessarily appear to be open to that idea. You guys meet on Tuesday to kind of review what companies like Exxon have said, and Exxon's not in favor of it. The vote would be the following Tuesday on April uh, 21st, and it would only take effect on May 1st, even if you do come to sign some kind of agreement. Is it, is it going to be too late? Well, I don't think it's going to be too late. It is later than it should be. I mean, if we need to do this, right, which is still the question, then we, ideally we would have done it, you know, um, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. But look, in the middle of this downturn, it, it's very hard to move fast with new things or new approaches. But you mentioned, look, I think actually the three commissioners are fairly close. All of us are cautious. All of us are free market people. All of us say we want to do what's best for Texans. We want to do what's best for Americans. And so we're evaluating this. No one has come out and said we are absolutely 100% for it. We also have to say we're 100% against it. My, my thing is to try to put data out there. And I've tried to, to speak into this as an option. My big disappointment has been some people have said we don't even want to have the conversation. Hmm. And frankly, I think that's been short-sighted. And a lot of the market agrees with you. 
So uh, we also know, and, and these projections are super interesting from you guys, you say, look, what happens is uh, with the oil market is contingent on when shelter-in-place orders are lifted. If they are lifted in May, the market could get back to normal by September. If they're not lifted till August, it could take two more years. So there is a huge uh, swing for how long we take to get uh, the economy back to normal. I wonder if OPEC doesn't cut at all today, and we've seen the oil price swing negative, if there is no, you know, 20 million barrel cut or anything like that coming, are you, is that going to force your hand? It's going to force everybody's hand. Let's be clear, that model you're talking about, I re-ran it last night or two nights ago. And, and I'm, I've been running this based on all these different economic models, downturns, unemployment numbers. And if OPEC cuts nothing and we end up sheltering in place through August, I think that the world is going to get down to a consumption level of around 65 million barrels a day. And it's going to stay there for a little while. And once storage fills up, then that's all the world can produce. Well, you say, where is that going to come from? That, that's going to be that, that's going to come out of everywhere. So in the end, everybody's going to cut if we end up having that scenario. The question is, is it a planned way or a reactive way? And does it end up really crushing some people while others stay OK? Or do, does everybody kind of share the load while we get through this downturn? I mean, those are really the fundamental questions. Yeah, but you're sympathetic to that idea? To trying to make probation, to trying to cut? Yeah, it's kind of having everybody share it, remain open to it. Look, there is, and I think I heard just before I got on, you guys were talking about supply chain. Energy supplies have got to be stable if we expect any sort of rapid recovery out of this recession. And if we lock up the supply chain with no intermittent storage, put a lot of producers out of business, then I am concerned that energy supplies will not be stable. And you'll see massive spikes and falls in oil prices. I think that's bad for everybody. And so I think this is a time with this unprecedented level of, of challenge on everybody around the world, that we would also have an unprecedented level of cooperation. So, yes, I am absolutely open to the idea. All right. Commissioner Sitton, we thank you again. Thanks for having me. Hope to check back in with you, Commissioner Ryan Sitton of the Texas Railroad Commission. Coming up, high-yield bonds are surging today. The ETF tracking the sector on pace for its best day since 2008, after the Fed doesn't about face and swoops into the market as a buyer. Is it a step too far? We'll discuss. We're back in two. Welcome back. Take a look at the major junk bond ETFs. They are soaring today, up more than 6%. That's their biggest one-day gain since 08. This after the Federal Reserve this morning said it will extend its asset purchases into these very products, junk bond ETFs. For more on the importance of this move, I'm joined by Tom Kennedy. He's the global head of macro and fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. Tom, welcome. And what's your reaction to the Fed's move here? Hi, Kelly. Uh, I'm incredibly impressed. I've been impressed with how fast they're moving, the scale with which they're moving, and now... To your point, the scope, they're widening their footprint into high yield. Um, the most important caveat really was that they are going to Tom, 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 one second. We're just going to have you restate what you just said. The most important caveat is to handle up nearly 20 I'm sorry. The caveat is, is the, the fallen angels discussion. Yes. The Fed today is announcing that they are going to support names that have that get downgraded from IG into high yield. Example today is Ford. Ford 31 bonds are trading 20 points higher on the day. What would your advice to investors be now? I think you have to acknowledge that there's a new player in this market. Um, high yield has lagged the rally we've seen in equities for the last two weeks. So one of these markets had it to correct. Either equities would have to settle lower or high yield would rally. 
I think given this rally we're seeing now, you defensively step in. Double Bs look attractive and crossovers, given that the Fed is going to be involved in that part of the market. Do you worry about how long they stay involved and how long to hold these uh, bonds? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, yes, meaning that I don't think they want to have a big footprint in, in high yield on a go forward, Kelly. But Powell said it today. And I, I, as you know, I spent a lot of time with these guys. They're, they're not going to be in a rush to the door. Um, we should assume there'll be players and active in this market for a long time. Which has some people worried. I mean, they're going to be exposed to credit losses that the Treasury will ultimately have to backstop. There's philosophical questions this raises and so forth, which is why sometimes it's nice to talk to the practitioners who kind of don't have to worry about that. I mean, the <laughs> message that most people seem to be taking from this is it's a game on for, for credit, basically, of all stripes and ultimately for equities, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, in some regards, the Fed is making it very clear to us that they are not going to let liquidity problems cause insolvency. So you, we, when I look at this this situation we're in with COVID, we have two problems. The economy is going to be very challenged, and we should not ignore that. But the liquidity crunch that we were experiencing for really three to six weeks, the Fed has really stepped in and actively told us this is not going to be an issue. And they are pointing liquidity into places that they've never been to, municipals, high yield, investment grade. So they have the ammunition to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, Kelly, one thing to also acknowledge, this feels like they're doing a lot. They've only levered up half of the roughly $500 billion that is in the exchange stability fund that the Treasury's put in there. So they have, they have more they can do. Yeah, this is, a, this is just half of what could be coming at us. Yeah. And it's an incredible amount already. Tom, thanks. We appreciate it today. Thank you. Tom Kennedy with J.P. Morgan Private Bank. Well, our breaking news coverage does continue with Power Lunch after this break. We're going to be keeping a very close eye on the oil close. After the last two days, energy has taken investors on quite a wild ride. Plus, we'll head to the front lines of the coronavirus crisis. The CEO of Holy Name Medical Center in New Jersey will join us. His hospital is at the epicenter of the outbreak. We'll be right back after the short break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.